Date Nighters, Tony back with Brewery recording live from Mission Bible in beautiful Orange County, California. Hello. Well, let's not waste any time because we have got a lot of ground to cover here, answering the real life questions associated with marriage and divorce and blended families. And we want to say thank you to those who've reached out with encouraging words after last week's episode. We know that it isn't an easy subject. Yeah. And just in case you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that one before listening to the rest of this one, because we hit on the biblical principles surrounding marriage, divorce, and remarriage and shared a bit of our story. And a lot of what we're talking about today builds on last week. And without that info, there may be holes in the logic or theology. And a reminder, a great book on all this is Jim Heiser's book, Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage, which can fill in the gaps we miss. So here we go. Top 15 questions on divorce and blended families. Let's roll. Okay, quick review, just to get our feet under us. Last week, we hit three big principles. Number one, God designed marriage to be lifelong, so wife for life. Number two, divorce was permitted as an exception because in a fallen world, there'd be hardness of heart. And number three, the Bible is clear on the grounds for divorce when and if it happens, which includes sexual infidelity or abandonment, providing options for the spouse who has been treated sinfully. Yes. And for sake of time, we had to leave it there. So we're doing this episode trying to give clear answers because we want to help those who are struggling. And big disclaimer, we know pastors and theologians will differ on some of the nuances. So we expect you to be Bereans, research for peace of conscience, but we're going to give our answers as plainly as we can. So Bri will read them off and then we'll try to answer them together. Although it looks like I'll be doing most of the talking. (laughs) Okay. This one's different, but relevant. Question number one is polygamy forbidden by God. Oh, well, that's actually more of a question now in the West than even 20 years ago because of TV shows and now what they call thruples and all that. But the answer is polygamy of any kind is not God's will. It violates what God designed in the garden. It violated the Mosaic law. And even when the Bible describes inculturated polygamy, it's never in a positive light. And obviously Jesus was clear that two shall become one in Matthew 19. So the answer is no, or yes, it is forbidden. Yes. So why did God allow it? Just toleration. It was never sanctioned. Uh, kind of like in the divorce thing, it's a it's an exception because of man's hardness of heart, and he let it go for a while. And question number two is similar. Must marriage be between a man and a woman? Yes. And we can defend that, of course, from natural law, where we just look at male and female bodies and how they're made to fit, in quote, together, while same-sex bodies don't, Romans 1, 26 and 27. But the stronger argument, I think, is Scripture, which says God made them male and female, Genesis 1, 27, and directed sexual activity before marriage, Genesis 2, 24, and all other sexual activity is forbidden, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, including homosexuality. And anyone who honestly affirms biblical inerrancy, I want to make sure I'm careful there, Anyone who honestly affirms biblical inerrancy leaves no room for debate on this. So there are liberals who will say, or progressives they're called, who will say, well, absolutely, sure, certainly this isn't a big deal, it's not in the Bible, but that's because they're already cutting out and trimming what is in fact in the Bible, and they're not interpreting through a literal, historical, and grammatical hermeneutic. Mm. Okay, number three, what must be done to protect a marriage? Yeah, nobody walks the aisle planning a divorce, but nearly 50% of marriages now end up that way, and it's a slow erosion. And often, even those who don't divorce live emotionally disconnected like roommates. So for starters, guard your personal walk with Christ. 
Make that a priority because as you love him, you'll naturally love your spouse. And next, don't take marriage for granted. Having a teammate in life is a gift and life is short. I think as you get older, you realize more and more, man, it's rare to have like a best friend in your life, like a wife or husband. And then remain strong in your local church with friends who value marriage and admonish you to fulfill the marital role God has given and be super honest with each other and quickly resolve conflict. Put time on the calendar to be out away from the kids and confessing sins or temptations as they arise. And your spouse really can become your greatest spiritual ally. And number four, what if a couple is starting to argue a lot? (laughs) You take this one. Are you saying I argue a lot? Uh, I don't know. (laughs) Conflict is dangerous. We've done full episodes on it, but I'd encourage the spouse listening to first take the log out of their own eye. Because even if our spouse is 90% wrong, by starting with ourselves, asking forgiveness for our sins, that opens the path to renewed communication lines and less quarreling. And I'll add in Ken Sandy's seven A's from Peacemakers. Number one, address everyone involved. Number two, avoid if, but, or maybe, meaning take full responsibility. Number three, admit specifically. Say precisely what you did. Number four, acknowledge the hurt. Number five, accept the consequences. Number six, alter your behavior. And number seven, ask for forgiveness. And conversely, if your spouse confesses something, forgive them as God forgives you by telling them three things. One, I will not dwell on this. Two, I will not use this against you. Three, I will not talk to others about this incident. And also, oh, I won't four. allow this to stand between us or his yes. relationship. Yes. Yeah. Well said, my love. And number five, often leads to marital struggles. What if our sex life is broken? Sure. And I think in the divorce through marriage arena, especially the way things are in our modern society, I mean, people use this excuse a lot. You know, we're broken physically. Um, we did two episodes on that last year, and anyone who's in this situation needs to find a good biblical counselor right away. But briefly, the idea is that outside of medical issues, the quality of our relational intimacy will shape our sexual intimacy. So when we're connecting on the inside, we'll naturally connect on the outside. And that relational development takes commitment. So plan time together, conversation, forgiveness, everything we just talked about. But let me add an idea from Neuheiser here that I absolutely love. He calls it grace sex. And the point that he makes is that many couples operate in the realm of law. They use sex as a reward or punishment according to what they think their spouse deserves. Like, hey, if we've clicked today or she's rubbed my shoulders or he's helped around the house, then sex has been, in quote, earned. Or if not earned, then removed as a tool of punishment. And Neuheiser says the alternative practice to law sex is grace sex, meaning give our spouse better than he or she deserves. Mm-hmm. Just as God has freely and graciously shown grace to us, we should do the same to our spouse, which so I think is good. great oh. from a counseling perspective. Yes. And number six, what are invalid reasons to get divorced? Yeah, this one's important because there's so much no fault divorce out now and I can't hit them all. And I mentioned a few last week, but here's a few. Okay. Number one, I wasn't a Christian when we were married. And Paul answers that clearly in first Corinthians seven, commanding the new believer to stay in the marriage. And another one that we got recently, number two was we weren't married in a true church service. But let's be clear, nothing in the Bible directs marriage has to be by a pastor or in a church building, only that someone can witness and testify to the vows which were made before God. Here's another one, number three. I need out for the sake of my kids. And obviously, there's, if there's abuse, there's going to need to be a removal or a separation for a period of time. But the Bible doesn't give an out simply because an unbelieving spouse may be harmful in their influence. And we actually may need to trust the Lord in that situation 
as he will use our faithfulness to maybe open the eyes of our children. And number four, my spouse is a disappointment and broke all the promises, which is just a traditional I deserve better posture, but that's why the vows, better or worse, are in the covenant. And that's the same with any statement associated with feelings, like we're not in love anymore, or I married the wrong person, or I owe myself happiness. All of that's feelings that's earthy and not an excuse to leave the marriage. Marriage is a covenant. It's beyond convenience, ease, or even feelings. Oh, so good. So would this include my friends and family all agree I should leave? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, though our family and friends can be a source of wisdom, and if they're Christians, they're going to need to support you staying in the marriage. What I'm always amazed by is how prone we are to finding, I call them birds of a feather. And this is even true at church. You know, we find the pocket of people who agree with what we desire, So if you find yourself always around people that affirm you and they won't point out sins or issues in you and call you to the mat on those, then you need to be very, very, very concerned. Yes. Number seven, why is divorce and remarriage such a complicated subject? Because marriage is the core relationship of a fallen world and it involves virtually everybody. It changes hue in various cultures and has been hotly debated for thousands of years. I mean, brilliant scholars have changed their published positions in the course of their own lifetime Mm -hmm. on this particular issue. Uh, And then for sake of illustration here, we add in the real life trauma of an individual who walks into my office, for example, after years of emotional pain and loneliness with a husband who comes home only to sleep, ignores the kids, and then shows up to church three, four times a year, knowing as a Christian she can't leave. That's a very challenging situation. So sin complicates life. Yes, which leads to number eight. Why does God allow divorce at all? Well, we talked about that briefly last week, but this is the crux of the matter, okay? That God allowed divorce to protect the innocent or the faithful partner. For example, in the Philippines, because they're largely Catholic, they don't allow divorce. So even though the unbelieving party would abandon the marriage and go live with someone else, The believing spouse couldn't obtain a legal divorce, and they weren't free to remarry. So the laws intended to protect the marriage actually failed to protect the innocent party, Mm. while the guilty party goes and runs amok. And if you go back to study the Old Testament, what we'll see is that that's what Moses allowed to protect the innocent in Deuteronomy 24, and Jesus reiterated in Matthew 19. So the point is every divorce involves a sinful violation of God's design, but not every divorced person is responsible for the divorce. And a Christian should do everything in their power to not be the responsible party. Exactly. Okay, question number nine. Is sexual sin valid grounds for divorce and remarriage? Yes. The majority view since the Reformation has been that sexual sin permits the innocent spouse to be free and remarry a believer. We often call that the Erasmian view. The Reformers pointed out that God himself divorced Israel, and quote, for spiritual adultery, Jeremiah 3, Isaiah 50, where obviously Israel was the guilty covenant-breaking party. And then Jesus clearly added the exception clause we talked about last week. Don't divorce except for, and the word he uses is immorality. May I probe there? You can. What is the immorality Jesus references? Because a lot seems to hinge on that. It does. And that's where things get academic because whatever fits into that word becomes allowance for divorce. And nobody argues on the word pornea, which is just the common word for sexual sin, adultery, incest, homosexuality, a variety of other sex sins. And the context of Matthew 19 supports it being sexual sin surrounding marriage. But then the question becomes one of extent. Is it eyes? Is it hands? Is it private parts? And people debate if even visual sins, like a gentleman's club, strip club, or pornography, or whatever should fit in. Do you think they should? (laughs) Well, it's hard because we're talking about first century statements before cinema, Mm -hmm. before technology, 
But in their day, they did have stage plays and hostels and cult prostitutes and peep shows and all kinds of pagan sex attractions. Like Corinth was a Vegas on steroids. So yeah, I think there would have been pretty common agreement in the first century on sexual activity hidden from the spouse and what precluded that. And we need to think deeply here. Sex is more than intercourse. It it can be oral, hands, kissing, obviously strip clubs, emotional affairs online, and all forms of perverse digital media now. And here's where biblical counseling becomes so important. There's a massive difference between the spouse who glanced, for example, at someone on the beach or watched a rated R movie, felt the guilt, confessed, and fights lust, seeking like Jesus told him to, to mortify sin, as compared to the person who relentlessly pursues porn and masturbation without apology, ignoring their spouse all in a willful addiction. Because that's not only pornea, it also becomes a form of abandonment. Hmm. All to say, yes, if there's a struggle with any secret sin, get with a counselor immediately because it will find you out and it could very easily become the end of a marriage. And number 10, when and how should sexual sin be forgiven? Well, I think even as Jesus permits divorce, he implies forgiveness. Remember that he doesn't say after sexual sin, a man should divorce, only that he may divorce. See, sexual sin doesn't end the marriage. It just gives the innocent party the grounds to end it via divorce. And the primary goal of the church, due to the power of the Holy Spirit, is restoration of marriages and homes. So if there's been sin, we'd tell people, Get to a biblical counselor and begin addressing, and here's the order. Number one, the nature of the sin committed. Is it one time? Is it multiple times? Is it confessed? Is the person penitent? Number two, respond slowly. When we're in pain, it's easy to overreact. Number three, the sinning party must then repent, fully come clean before God to their spouse and remove any and all contact with the area of sin. And number four, then ask forgiveness of the spouse they've harmed. And that'll begin a process of restoration, trusting that in the Lord, the sin will be fully forgiven, wherein the innocent spouse makes a decision to continue in the marriage and forego using that sin against the spouse in the future. And the goal isn't that the marriage thing continues on as before, but that it takes a new shape into God's ideals where both parties grow and take on the biblical roles. Yep, absolutely. It's not restored back to the old way. It's restored into the new plan. Awesome. Number 11, what constitutes abandonment? That is tough too, because everyone agrees on the principle, but not what qualifies. And I've even seen this where a man stayed married, but didn't pay for anything, ignored the kids and the wife's just stuck. So, so let me share some examples from Jim Neuheiser's book on what end quote might qualify. Again, these things need to be discussed with your counselor and in each marital context. But Neuheiser says it may be considered abandonment when, for example, one spouse declares they'll never again be sexually intimate. Or number two, when a wife works hard to earn money and the husband sits around and spends it all day partying or on video games. Or number three, with all the LGBTQIA stuff, a spouse suddenly says they're trapped in the wrong body and starts cross-dressing. Or number four, a spouse has been involved in massive illegal financial activities, tax scams, or fraud and keeps all of it as a secret. Or five, a spouse travels to stay with friends or relatives for many months, only returning when the funds dry up, okay, things like that. He's pointing to willful and ongoing rebellion to partner in the marriage. Yes. Okay. And tough one, number 12, is abuse grounds for divorce? 
Yeah, this is another tough one, but there's been a shift in conservative circles. Obviously, there are different types of abuse, mental, physical, sexual, verbal, emotional, and all that. And even the word abuse demands evaluation in context. And abusers can manipulate those being abused into silence. Yes, which is what makes it hard. More and more counselors are trying, and I'm not going to fully answer this, and I want to refer people back to their counselors. More and more counselors are trying to better triage here, where, where first and foremost, the abused spouse is offered assistance and protection. Because even if we don't believe abuse is grounds for divorce, we should still want to protect people. Yes. But there's also a growing sentiment that certain levels of abuse can fit into the category of abandonment. And let me read something which originated from Chris Moles, and Neuheiser talks about it and others in his book. It's called The Heart of Domestic Abuse. He says severe cases of abuse, in his, in his uh, understanding, could fall under the category of abandonment. If the oppressive spouse isn't willing to live at peace with the believer, that person is effectively causing a separation by forcing the innocent spouse to leave. And then he goes on to commentate from 1 Corinthians seven fifteen, making the point that an abusive spouse has abrogated the peace for the believer and is emotionally and spiritually abandoning the welfare of the partner. So yeah, it's a tough one. I think you got to go back to your biblical counselor, but there are more and more counselors who are saying, and even pastors saying that it is possible uh, that certain forms of abuse could quickly abrogate the marriage. And number 13, when is remarriage advisable? There's no way to answer completely, but let me try to put this into big categories. And then date nighters, you work out the nuances with your Bible in your hand and in your pastor's office. Number one, widows may remarry and some should, especially younger widows should remarry. Number two, anyone divorced on biblical grounds may remarry unless they feel staying single can help them do more for Jesus. Number three, anyone divorced on unbiblical grounds should try to reconcile with their former spouse or stay single unless your ex moves on and remarries. Number four, if you have an unbelieving ex who wants to remarry, now this is very specific, I'm going to give you an opinion here, I suggest waiting and not re-entering a covenant with someone not in the faith. I think that could conceivably set up for more disaster down the road. Number five, if you or your ex has remarried, then the current marriage needs to be respected and not interrupted or abrogated. Now, if anyone really wants to dig into all that more, check out John Murray's classic from 1961. It's just titled Divorce, and it's pretty easy to find online. And number 14, how do we build a blended family? Yeah, almost a third of all marriage now establishes a blended family, which is huge. So so this is a big area of discipleship in the church, and we'll need to do a full episode follow-up on this because there's just so much. For starters, check out the book Preparing to Blend. It's actually a series by Ron Deal because he offers a guide for stepdad, stepmom, and the family as a whole. And I think there's a workbook too, but the biggest principles that he writes about are number one, slow down your expectations. It takes years for a blended family to feel like a nuclear one. Mm. Number two, make the marriage number one. The tendency will be to keep the kids first because they're all undergoing massive change. But if they learn quickly, mom and dad are united, they'll actually find security which leads to number three, don't be hurt by personal slights. Like, you're not my real mom, you're not my real dad. Instead, use those as heart training opportunities. But yeah, the key on this one is order the book, start reading it right away as a family because God is not done. He has more to do in that home. Ooh, which fits with number 15, how should the church treat divorces? Listen, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. It's a stigma, especially in our reform circles, but over 50% of our mission field has struggled through relational sins, broken hearts. Some of them were faithful, others were sinful. But just like everyone else, the gospel offers hope. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't consequences. There are. And responding to the gospel is repenting of sin and turning to Christ, including his desires for our marital behavior. And depending on age and stage, there may even be limits to the type of office, for example, a man can hold in the church based on his recent past. But there's no sin 
talked about this last week. No sin outside rejecting Christ that disqualifies anyone from entrance into the kingdom, into church membership, and into full fellowship of the body. Let me quote Neuheiser here, the very last statement in his book. He says, quote, The church consists of sinners who have been saved by God's grace, which include people who have divorced and remarried. We should never stigmatize or shun those who have returned from their sin to Christ. Just as we have been shown mercy through Jesus, who has fully accepted us, we should accept one another. Amen. Well, date night fam, I talked a lot in this one. I hope it was helpful. I love <laughs> I know it's a lot. Some great books again are Jim Neuheiser's Marriage, Divorce, and Remarriage, John Murray, Divorce, and Ron Deal's Preparing to Blend, and of course, your Bible. Let's pray. Father, the stats suggest that over half the people listening right now this very moment have or have had marital breakdown. And we pray for them to hear your heart, to obey your word, to fight for their vows, to forgive, and to rebuild. Help them, Lord. Help all of us. And if there's been rupture, hurt, anxiety, loss, restore us, reconcile us, that we may finish this race well, running full speed to the finish line for your glory and others' good. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Date Nighters, we will be back in a week. Thanks to Team FTG, our entire Mission Bible fam, Ethan, our producer. Until next time, keep living for the gospel and fighting for the family.